but the system that we have set up it feels like it's stronger than the laws of physics even this is the inevitable <laughs> end right? and we're all just trying to say okay but here's the thing this isn't like the laws of physics we can actually change this <laughs> easy to say the nonprofit sector is broken. Less easy is saying how we're going to fix it. Welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors, where we speak with brilliant people to reimagine the future of social impact. In this fourth season, we'll be switching things up a bit and diving into what we all want, including and beyond donors. I'm Rachel Stephenson-Chef, IG's Managing Director, and we're a strategy consultancy specializing in social and environmental change. This podcast is part of our mission to fix the flow of resources for good. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel, host of the show, and I had the privilege of speaking with Jessamine Shams Lau and Jane Liu all about power dynamics in governance. To tell you a little bit more about our guests... Jessamine is a proud high school dropout turned MBA. She is an advocate for the redistribution of power in philanthropy, nonprofit workforce well-being, feminine leadership, and quality therapy for everyone. Is that not the best bio you've ever heard? I think I'm going to have to rewrite mine to include many of those same elements. Following a decade of leading a family foundation, Jessamine now works for Camelback Ventures, working to bring together communities of funder accomplices to further racial justice and diversify power in funding, and for the Wellbeing Project, where she is supporting funders who want the well-being of all changemakers to be regarded as essential across philanthropy. And now for Jane. With over 20 years under her belt, Jane Liu is an internationally recognized serial social entrepreneur. She founded Smarter Good, working to help global social sector organizations start, sustain, and scale their impact. Smarter Good has nearly 100 professionals who are working on fundraising and accounting in the middle of the relationships between 80 nonprofit organizations and easily 1,000 foundations. She holds the firm belief that talent drives impact and is passionate about diversity in the social sector. Jessamine and Jane met more than a decade ago. And they've partnered in many ways over the years, including with the foundation that Jessamine ran, funding all of Jane's social ventures, and Jane sitting on the advisory board of that foundation. Also, fun fact, both Jane and Jessamine, alongside our previous guest, Vu Lei, co-authored the book Unicorns Unite, which they define as, I quote, a whimsical journey through a challenging conversation that could hold the key to slay the dragons of injustice and inequality once and for all. Wow, is that ever a tagline? So if you haven't read it already, it's a must. I have read it. Big fan. And in fact, it's been five years since they first published Unicorns Unite. And so to celebrate, they are giving 50% off the book on the publisher's website. So if you're keen, now is your moment to grab a copy. You can use the code UNI, U-N-I 50, all capitals, when buying the book on redpress.co.uk. And finally, before we get into the episode, I of course want to send a thank you and shout out to our official season four sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, whose generosity and partnership makes this all possible. And also want to send a shout out to our fantastic media partner, Alliance Magazine. You can check out their website, alliancemagazine.org, and you can get 50% off an Alliance subscription by using the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, at checkout. Okay. That's enough for me. I think we will now go on to the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So welcome, 
Jasmine and Jane to What Donors Want. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. So excited to have met you and connected with you over this topic. As you know, and as listeners know, hopefully that today we're talking about power dynamics and governance. And there is a lot to unpack within that. So I think let's dive right on in. So to kick us off, Jasmine, I want to start with you first, because for over a decade, you led a Californian family foundation. And as so many family philanthropy professionals have to do, you had to navigate some very interesting waters when it came to governance, (laughs) (laughs) to put it lightly. There was a lot there. And before we dive into the theory and the solutions and what we all want to see from the future of the sector, which is very much where I want this conversation to go, but I think it would be really nice to start with your story and to have that as kind of a foundational framing for why we're talking about this, why it's important to all of us, and what kind of solutions we can imagine from there. So without further ado, Jasmine, over to you first. would love to hear about your experiences. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate the space that you're creating here. Okay, well, we'll start at the end and then we'll loop back is the way I'm thinking of doing this. So in June 2020, it was one Friday that I saw members of my team were dropping off Slack and there was no explanation, there was no communication. And and to be honest, like many organizations in June 2020, the foundation had offered extended time off, flexibility to our staff as the world was just watching the pandemic unfold and really affect just every single aspect of our lives at the time. But even in that context, like our staff were always communicative and clear about when they were going to be offline and unavailable. And so them dropping off Slack one after the other was just highly unusual. So I checked their calendars and saw that my colleagues had meetings scheduled with our board right before they logged off. This was also highly unusual. And I didn't know what was happening in that moment, but instinctively knew that something was wrong. And so after a weekend of not hearing from anybody and stressing, the following Monday, I had my own meeting with two members of our board. And they let me know the foundation's board had made the decision to lay off the entire staff of the foundation. And in that moment, it was an absolutely, completely shocking revelation, like just not something I had ever imagined And so, you know, in the midst of that early chaos and confusion of COVID-19, the backdrop of the Black Lives Matter resurgence, my team had that added financial insecurity and health insurance uncertainty added to their list of concerns. Mm. It was the only way I can really describe it was just a complete shock. It was like being dumped into freezing cold water and... We weren't the only ones who felt that way. It was interesting. Our funder peers, our nonprofit colleagues expressed a whole range of reactions and emotions, confusion, shock, disappointment, anger, disbelief. And my team started to field questions about why this decision had been made and what it meant for the future of everybody's relationships with the foundation. And we did not have many answers. Mm-hmm. What happened? We weren't entirely sure. It was very incongruent with the foundation's previous approach, with the foundation's stated values, with the two like core questions that I had been asked to act on from day number one. I was hired as the first non-family staff member at the foundation 11 years before that. And the two questions that the board president put in front of me, like almost on day one, 
was, what does philanthropy look like when we strive to meet the same standards as we ask nonprofits to meet? What does philanthropy look like when we view our grantees as clients or customers? Those were the two questions that had guided the whole foundation's work, our philosophy, our organizational culture, the way we hired, the way we had conversations. Like over those 11 years, they'd influenced our board and our team in articulating the foundation's vision and approach for what we called grantee-centric philanthropy. We really thought about those questions as the ones that enabled our thinking and approach to evolve over time and be guided, most importantly, by the amazing nonprofits that we worked with. And for those 11 years, we were so proud of what we did mm-hmm. and how we did it. And as COVID unfolded, as an increasing number of people took to the streets to protest the murder of George Floyd. Our staff, again, put those questions into action, Mm -hmm. trying to like double or triple our efforts to try and keep up and support the the superhuman work that our nonprofit colleagues were doing to be there for their communities in various stages of crisis. And in order to do that, to act on those questions in the way that we knew how, this involved us putting bigger, bolder asks in front of our board, Mm-hmm. making the case to not only meet the moment with words of support, but with clear commitments to action, to do what we do best, to move more money, and in that situation, particularly to black and brown communities fast. I know our staff, myself, I know our board as well. We were all involved in us interrogating our own histories and identities in that moment, the summer of 2020, like the system of philanthropy that we were all part of as many people around us as well, we were all diving into trying to understand and own our own complicity in the norms that were often invisible to us, invisible to us because we were folks in roles of positions of privilege and philanthropy, mm-hmm. you know. And how did we understand that those things that might have been invisible to us previously all along had cumulatively created very tangible harm for communities and leaders of color that we purported to serve. So I think that was like a very pivotal moment in the funding world where there's this new wave of folks realizing that philanthropy is deeply intertwined with racial injustice, systems of oppression, both historically and contemporarily. It's not a pleasant realization for anybody with good intentions belief in the work that they're doing in the world and so you know we come back to the board's decision to lay off our staff as best as I can surmise the bolder proposals the internally the externally asked questions asking ourselves how we might be part of the problem and a divergence on the language we used particularly for a Black Lives Matter solidarity statement were interpreted by some or all of the board as personal attacks on them Mm -hmm. and that led to the board deciding it was not their desire to be an institutional staff-run foundation but to be a family-driven and a family-run organization and the layoff of our team was announced wow that's what happened in a nutshell (laughs) oh my gosh that's quite a nutshell thank you first of all for sharing that I know this is one of the first times that you're sharing this more publicly, I believe. And I think 
the reason why I wanted to start with this and why I think it's so important is because, ironically, because of the power structures within this sector, so much of these realities, what you've gone through, it remains so hidden and reserved for conversations between colleagues at lunch in a corner or bottom shelf paper bag. And actually, it prevents us from doing anything about them. So thank you for sharing that. And can I ask, and Jane, I'll I'll come to you in a second because I want to know about your involvement in this too. But Jessamine, I'm just curious as to why did you want to share this? Why are you passionate about this subject and why now? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I really want my staff to know that unequivocally they did nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important for that message to be in the public narrative as they continue to build their careers, you know, and as you know, many of them are young women of colour, worrying about what will be read between the lines when there's nothing but a board's public statement about why a foundation shut down and then a, a big, you know, just silence for people to draw their own conclusions. Yeah. And their questions that they posed to me, our leadership team, our board were 100% appropriate and important. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, each of our staff showed grace, professionalism, empathy in that exact moment that the board shared the news that they would be jobless within mm-hmm. months. So they put aside their shock, their fear, immediately went to work, doubled down on our organization's value of grant-centric philanthropy. While all of that hurt and betrayal was still raw, they worked as hard as they always did to put together scores of recommendations of additional funding for most of our grantees because they wanted to minimize the shock and the fear and the negative impact of of what our grantees would feel from the board's decision. So for anybody listening, if you ever get the chance to hire somebody who used to work at this foundation, know that you will be hiring somebody with the highest ethics and commitment to the communities that they serve. And I think the other reason that I wanted to be part of this conversation was that ultimately that decision was contradictory to the foundation's organizational values, Mm -hmm. its goals of treating grantees as customers, and contradictory to the foundation holding itself to similar standards as nonprofits are asked to hold themselves. And being part of these events has opened the door for other executive directors, foundation leaders and professionals to tell me their stories, sometimes scarily similar sometimes quite different, but with the same common thread. And that is we do not have an effective governance structure. It might sound like I'm setting up kind of a staff good, board bad conversation, but I'm not. I don't believe that at all. As I've processed this situation and gained more distance from it, tried to understand what went on, I really have come to believe that it's not the fault of the foundation's board members. In making this decision, they acted completely within their purview completely within the interests of their relationships that are most important to them, their families. And when I put myself in their shoes or put my family in that situation, I honestly don't know if we would have made different decisions given the circumstances. Mm -hmm. Like There's a very good chance we would have done exactly the same thing. And so it's not about the people. This is about us having a conversation in the open about a system that we all accept and perpetuate. Mm-hmm. that is not serving the best interests of, I would argue, anybody involved, but particularly the communities who are most impacted by philanthropic decisions. Mm-hmm. 100%. And Jane, what about you? Can you tell us a little bit more about your involvement in this experience and what it was like to see Jessamine navigate this? 
Sure. I was a colleague of this organization, this foundation for about a decade. I think I started working with them when Jessamine started and I was on their advisory board, which was already really unique to have someone like me as a nonprofit leader on the advisory board of a foundation. So I had worked really closely with this foundation for quite a long time. They funded all of my ventures, I think three of my different social impact ventures. And then our company, Smarter Good, works in the relationship between nonprofits and fundraiser and foundations. We would see the work of this foundation from behind the scenes all the time. So many of our client partners were funded by this foundation. And so we knew the relationship that they had. And as a result, when this all went down, we were just getting this steady stream of emails of, oh my goodness, what is going on? And people were absolutely freaking out. I knew what was going on because I was, Jasmine is a good friend and a colleague and a co-author. We've worked together on a million things over the years. And so she was looping me in. But the reaction from the sector was just extraordinary because we'd always counted on this foundation to set the bar higher. And they were setting the bar higher. It was really a blow, really a blow. Wow. What I love about this specific experience is that it is so universal. I know, you know, people listening, whether you work in a nonprofit or in philanthropy, or maybe you're a donor or a trustee yourself, I know that many people will find some way to relate to it in some form or another. And I keep thinking about this quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's by this American author named Jacqueline Woodson, who says, the more specific we are, the more universal something can become. Life is in the details. I just love that because, and I think this story is a perfect example of that. This is one particular foundation, one particular board. But as you said, Jasmine, this is not about individual people. This is about a system that enables this kind of governance and this kind of behavior. And there's so much universality to what you're speaking to. So I'm so thrilled that we get to start the conversation off on this specific point because it is a universal point. And especially in governance and power, we can talk about it so much at a theoretical level, but if you don't bring an example to light, it kind of means nothing. So this is very, very cool to be able to make it mean something. And so I want to talk a little bit more about the different perspectives within all of this. But I also just want to ask, before we go any deeper to the conversation, I imagine donors might be listening to this. I imagine they are. I certainly know they're part of our listener base. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that you would want to say at this point to that kind of audience to make sure that people are not checking out too much or kind of remaining engaged in this, because this is very much, I hope, a collective conversation that everyone can find a pathway into. I think it's worth stating like out loud because again, you know, if we've never spoken before and you're just hearing me recount this situation, you might be like, oh my goodness, she's just, you know, a disgruntled philanthropy person, blah, 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 who wasn't happy with her board. And the fact of the matter is, I actually know that those board members are incredibly good people. They are very caring individuals with such deep intentions to do good in this world. Okay, absolutely believe this to be true. And by extension, those are the board members that I know the best. I worked with them for a long time. But I also know that that extends to most board members out there as well. Right. Nobody is coming into this work to, you know, wield power or, you know, to control people or to do things in a way 
that isn't ideal, right? We're all coming into this work wanting to do good, wanting to contribute to something bigger than ourselves, wanting to build whatever legacy it might be for our career or our family or our foundation or whatever it might be. And so, again, just reiterating, like, this conversation is not about you as an individual, what kind of person you are, what kind of intentions you have, and it's not a judgment on you. This is a judgment of the system we are all part of, because when representation, accountability, checks and balances are not part of our systems of governance, even the best of people make decisions that move institutions further away from relinquishing dominion and control over funds, which maybe we can come back to that phrase in the future because that is an important one that I actually only learned about recently. And as you move further away from that, it becomes a concentration of power and influence over communities that's held in the hands of the few, but isn't deliberately concentrated, right? It's like this gravitational pull. It's like being pulled into a black hole, right? Nobody is trying to go towards concentrating power and mistaken actions. But the system that we have set up, it feels like it's stronger than the laws of physics even. This is the inevitable (laughs) end, right? And we're all just trying to say, okay, but here's the thing, this isn't like the laws of physics. We can actually change this. Mm -hmm. So let's try and come to the conversation as people who have the ability to make shifts, right? Because if it's not us who are in this system, whether you're a board member, whether you're a staff member, whether you're an executive, doesn't matter. We are all in this system and we are what perpetuates it. So just inviting everybody, including board members, especially board members, I just feel like you have such an important role in this transformation, you know, and it's only possible when we all have the conversation and realize that it is not about us as individuals. Oh, I love that. I love we are. This is not the laws of physics, but it does feel like that sometimes. So many of these systems, it's but we're limited by our own imagination sometimes, or at least certainly I am. I know that for so much of this work for me, it's like a mindset shift that can feel really difficult at first, but actually very expansive. That's so cool. Thank you for saying that. And Jane, I want to come to you next because I know when we first connected, you said something that really stuck with me and I think is quite relevant to this, to the power dynamics and governance at a bigger level, where we were talking about how for many, and not all, but many, family foundation trustees specifically, when they engage with the foundation and they participate in a governing board, it's so often something they do on the side or it's a hobby. It's not their full-time job. And whereas for the professionals that run the foundation, the people that do the day-to-day, this is their entire career. There's a very big difference in how these people are relating to the foundation and to the work of philanthropy. Could you expand on that a little bit more? I think it's a really important thing to talk about. Yeah. And I would say for board members in general, I I sit on a number of boards and I know that oftentimes I'm phoning it in to that that job, if you call Mm -hmm. it a job, versus how I show up for my real career, even though I consider this part of my career sitting on boards. And I can only imagine for so many foundation members, when you're sitting on a board with your family, I mean, just so much empathy for the dysfunction of that. I'm a contrarian in my family. I would never want to be in a relationship having to make decisions about society and what gets funded with my family. I would always lose those conversations. 
So I think when you bring that dynamic into it, it's just hard to keep that professional perspective for the vast majority of people working in this sector. This is a calling. This is a profession. This is something we've trained to. We went to grad school for this. We are constantly focused on increasing our abilities and skills in this field. You know, I think that's the challenging piece. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily that same structure for the folks that are sitting on the board of a family foundation, for mm-hmm. example. For sure. And I think that is such an important context because something that I am mindful of, which is tempting to do, is to just oversimplify the reasons why these things happen or why these problems exist. But if you oversimplify the reasons, then you oversimplify the solutions. And that's not helpful to anyone. But I completely take your point. How many board meetings have I been on, either as the trustee or as the facilitator, you know, through my job at IG, we work with a lot of boards and easily 75% of the people, their cameras aren't on, you know, phoning it in. That's a very human behavior that I think we can all relate to. And I think that's a really good point to bring up in the context of this. There's undeniably a difference there. One of my favorite tactics that a a longtime executive director taught me is that at the start of her board meeting, she would have quiet reading time so that everyone who didn't read the board packet could read the board packet, i.e. everyone. (laughs) I.e. everyone. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And when thinking about reimagining governance, I always think about how oftentimes unuser friendly the board packets are or, you know, how like no wonder people don't want to make time to read them sometimes because... Oh my God. I know. Hideous. I know. Hideous. Hideous. Yeah. Hideous. 100 pages of exactly. Yeah. If we're talking about reimagining governance, I want to talk about reimagining governance packs. Something has to be part of it. It has to be part of it. It does because I don't blame them for not wanting to read the entire thing. This podcast is made possible by Seagull Family Foundation. We are building an extensive network of extraordinary people, positively transforming lives and communities across Africa. Whether you are a dreamer, funder, leader, or visionary, our network can help you make the greatest impact. To learn more, visit www.seagullfamilyfoundation.org or contact us at info at seagullfamilyfoundation.org. Moving on from this, I think I want to talk about now getting into some of the solutions or kind of diving into this a little bit more. And I want to talk about Camelback Ventures. It's so interesting. And Jasmine, this is something that you're very, very involved in. And I think it's so incredible because through your work at Camelback, it really, to me, it shows that you're challenging the sector because you love it. And I think that's something that a lot of people who aren't comfortable with these kinds of conversations don't fully understand. That's what brings up the defensiveness, but actually all the work you're doing and this conversation itself is a love language. In some ways, it's a love letter to the sector. And I think I just always want to bring that up. So Jasmine, can you tell us about Camelback Ventures, why it's so important, what it is, what work you do? Yeah, absolutely. So the bread and butter of Camelback Ventures is finding, funding and supporting leaders of color, black, brown, non-binary women leaders who, unfortunately, many research studies have shown are underfunded when compared with their white male counterparts. So they're an accelerator 
to really support undervalued entrepreneurs, both for and nonprofit. And as part of that work, they realized that it's not just working with the entrepreneurs and giving them access to networks that they might not have had before or the other accelerator services that they provide, but it's also working with funders and saying, okay, there's a conversation here happening within the funding world. There are norms happening in the funding world that need to change as well in order to recognize that so many entrepreneurs are undervalued. And so how do we have that conversation with particularly white funders around racial inequity, racial injustice that shows up in the way that we do our work as funders? So I have been supporting their team in running what they call the Capital Collaboratives for white identifying funders wanting to further their racial equity journey, wanting to figure out how to be an agent of creating a more distributed power within the world of funding and capital allocation. But we're also starting to have a conversation around boards as well. So not just working with the white funded professionals, but working with boards and wanting to have a conversation around creating a different definition of legacy. Because we know that, you know, as people are doing more research, educating themselves, they're on their own learning journeys around what it means to really understand historical current inequities and the way that black and brown communities have been marginalized in many different ways, that a lot of the people doing that work are also board members, right? They're not exempt from, you know, wanting to understand and figure out, oh my goodness, what have I not been seeing that I want to be aware of? And so we're designing a space for board members and trustees to come together building on the lessons that we've learned, working with the white funder professionals, building a board cohort where the participants will be in the safety of a peer-supported cohort to redefine their roles and play this role of formulating a transition in governance in their organizations. What does it look like for them to step back a couple of steps from power How do they reimagine? How do they bring in the right stakeholders to together with them reimagine and articulate what governance structures could look like for their organizations if they were designed to center equity, to center justice, representation, liberation from the start? And we can't create something we haven't first imagined. So we're collecting and hearing diverse, creative, surprising ideas all about what governance might look like because. The future of governance doesn't have one particular shape or form, right? We're not putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is what it has to look like. It has to tick these five boxes. It should be bespoke. It should be tailored to the particular people, cause, solutions, communities, dynamics involved. And so if you're one of those board members that wants to diversify power in philanthropy and redefine your own role in this opportunity to transition governance, to transform governance, we would love to hear from you. Come and talk to me. Find me on LinkedIn. We'd love to hear your advice about how to create that space of support, how to create a space where you and your peers feel comfortable challenging each other and yourselves to imagine and kind of define what a more metamorphic approach to legacy might look like. So that that's something that we're working on that honestly is, for me, my journey was directly 
fueled by the insights that I've gathered from the experience of running a foundation, going through that very interesting situation of having staff layoffs, processing all of that experience and what I'd learned from amazing entrepreneurs like Jane, who I'm sure has her own stories of how being a woman in a white male dominant field has been particularly challenging. That's so incredible. I love that you've taken that experience and turned it into something like Camelback. And I'm sure I can only imagine that the staff team that you were speaking about before and that they would see you doing that and be so inspired by that example. I want to go into this more because I I love what you said around we can't create solutions for things we haven't yet imagined. That is such a good quote. And before we get into the solutions piece, I just wanted to ask a quick question around the demand for this from your perspective, like the bird's eye view that you have through your own work and Jane as well and through Camelback. What demand and from who is there to engage in work like Camelback is providing? And are there any gaps in that demand that you wish weren't there? I mean, is this one of those build it and they will come situations? Yeah. But I do hear a little bit from some donors that I know who have been through some situations with nonprofit boards, with nonprofit boards recently, where they're reflecting there just has to be a better way. So it's interesting when, you know, when donors feel that the nonprofit board structure doesn't work, you know, it is a chance to engage around that and then also reflect on the foundation board structure. There is a little bit of demand out there for sure. I don't think it's the top of most people's minds, yeah, really. And I can say that for a while, there was a rumor going around that I was writing a book called Forget the Board. And I don't know if I started that rumor. It's possible. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's a good title. Yes. Well, it it then got shortened to FTB and Uh the F became something else. And people were texting that (laughs) during their board meetings. Um, but you know, a friend in philanthropy asked me at one point to stop talking about that book because she didn't find it very productive. And she's probably right. Like we have to present what comes after the board Mm -hmm. if we're going to take down boards in general. Yeah. I completely agree with you, Jane. And I think that board members are already telling us they want to reimagine board governance indirectly. Like they might not be saying it in these same words. But just in my time working as an executive director, I heard things said like, we don't want to leave this responsibility to our kids, for instance, when talking about generational transitions, implying this is really hard and we don't want to put that on the shoulders of our children. Or I didn't ask for this responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's just because I have the last name that I do. I often heard board members from different foundations talk about the unjoyful side of this responsibility that they held and that it wasn't something that they would necessarily choose, but they felt a deep obligation to follow through, to show up, to say yes, whatever it might be. And so I do think that there are probably folks out there who don't want to be in these positions, you know, and are looking for the right way to say, yeah, I want to play a role, but my role is not this one that I've been given. My role it probably looks a bit different, but I don't know how to get from here to there without upsetting someone or disappointing someone, whether that's myself or someone else. 
And so I do think we haven't really given people that many options as to what it looks like to be in governance, right? This this traditional board structure that no one feels like they have the power to change mm-hmm. and they don't want to get it wrong. And yeah. so they don't push the boundaries too far. They don't know if it's possible to change the status quo as one person, but they might have like an inkling that a definition of legacy that they can be truly proud of yeah. involves them letting go of their power, involves them not playing the role that they're playing right now, involves them creating space for transformation. And I think those folks, like if given the right, the opportunity and the space, there's a more intelligent form of stewardship that each of them are looking for and want to be the innovators to bring about as well. Yeah. I wonder what it would look like if some of those board members shared a seat with someone from the nonprofit side and mm-hmm. had a partnership to make some of those decisions. Because while they may not want those roles, I think there's plenty of people who are operating in the social sector who would love to steward money towards different kinds of organizations than might get funded today. And that's the cool thing, Jane. Like as soon as we give people space and permission to imagine and design, you get all these cool ideas coming up. Like they're not that far away from where we are right now. It doesn't have to be like maybe it could be a complete transformation from day one to two, but maybe also it's just like a couple of steps away from what we're currently doing. And I find it very exciting and a very like generative, hopeful conversation because we know that what we're doing right now is not working. I don't know anyone who will defend the traditional form of governance we've inherited from banking Mm -hmm. is the right form of governance to manage like social change. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We will never achieve the results communities needs while this dynamic remains in place. But when we all put our heads together and the various different types of expertise that we've got, I do think that we will be able to be really generative. And if we're brave enough and courageous enough, can have some experiments to see, Okay, maybe there's like 10 different things that could work. Maybe there's 50. I don't know. But there's more than what we've got. Mm -hmm. I love what you said around that so many people, trustees, don't feel like they have the power to change these structures that we've inherited, as you say, from the banks. And I think that's absolutely true. And I also think that sometimes it's not only is it that, but it's that we don't have the energy to question them. Even that is taxing, like that requires effort and capacity that not all people and certainly not all nonprofits have. I think about that a lot. And okay, so we're definitely moving now into the solutions. I love that. That's one solution for Jade, which is brilliant. Part of the conversation. I want to ask a question around power because the topic of this conversation is power dynamics in governance. And I certainly, I can admit to having a lot of assumptions baked within that. And I also know that when I think about the word power, I definitely first go to the power over versus power with mindset. And that's something I'm trying to evolve within myself. But I just wanted to ask you, we're talking about power dynamics and governance and all of the problems. And I want to ask, do you think power and by extension, these power dynamics, do you think they're an inherently bad thing in governance? Can they ever be helpful? I think the power of individual board members who have the ability to go out in the world and get things done on behalf of the organization can be useful. And Mm -hmm. I've benefited from very powerful board members who could make phone calls I couldn't make, who could Mm -hmm. bring people into the fold, things that I would never have been able to put my hands on. 
I think that's useful. But the power of board members over the team that is doing the work day by day, that tends to be less useful. And teams always feel like they must respond. And I've been a board member now many of times. I have lots of crazy ideas. I don't actually expect anyone to act on those ideas, but I'm sure the teams think, oh, now I have to go off and research this thing because Jane wanted me to do it. So I think that that's where the challenge is, is that there's this outsized power in everything that you say that you don't own very well as a board member. You don't think every time you speak, oh, someone's going to have to go put this into their work plan and do this next month. Mm -hmm. Yeah, being mindful of that. And to your point, so many people not realizing the power Mm -hmm. they have, even funders in conversations with grantees will make a suggestion. You know, to them, they're bouncing ideas back and forth and brainstorming. And to the grantee, they're receiving directions that if they don't follow, their funding is at risk. And so many funders don't proactively mitigate that or say that out front, either because they don't know it's there or they're uncomfortable and they don't want to acknowledge it or they think they have, but they've done it in a discreet way and it's not super obvious. Really love that point. Jasmine, what do you think? Is power always negative in governance? No, absolutely not. But I think in this particular situation, what we see is power that is unbalanced with a few of the checks and balances Mm -hmm. that are essential to keep power in a productive place. I'll highlight three quickly. One, awareness. Most people outside of philanthropy organization do not know how philanthropy works. Most people inside of philanthropic organization don't know the details of what is actually required of them. And by that, I mean, for instance, going back to this idea of dominion and control. I was in philanthropy for 12 years before I'd even heard this phrase. Dominion and control is something that is legally required for the founder of an organization to put their money into a foundation or a donor advice fund. They are legally required to relinquish dominion and control of those funds. In practice, does that happen? No, no, it doesn't happen at all. We have it only increases. The board of directors elects the officers of the foundation and they're usually themselves. So there's no relinquishing of dominion and control in practice. And the thing is, most people in philanthropy don't even know that that is a requirement. So we're not discussing it. We're not discussing how we're not doing it or how we could do it better. I heard from a friend who has been uh, working with a community foundation, contacting their donor advised fund holders. The majority of the donor advice fund holders didn't even know what a donor advice fund was, did not know they had one, and thought it was a scam call. (laughs) Wow. We wonder why no money is moving from donor advice funds. It's because the only reason people like have them is because like their financial advisor is telling them when they have their nice equity payout that they need to plonk some money in a community foundation in a donor advice fund. They sign the paperwork, they never hear anything else about it. Mm-hmm. You know, there is such a lack of knowledge and awareness around our field, how it works, what it actually takes to move it. The other piece is like accountability. We have like close to zero accountability for those in governance in our system of funding. And given that the decisions funders collectively make impacts people's lives at scale and often in the most difficult and crisis-oriented moments of their lives, that's not okay. I don't think that is like going out on a limb to say that. I think we would all want accountability to exist 
with a governance structure that has such widespread and important impacts. So there's no ombudsman for the philanthropic sector. There's no Hippocratic oath philanthropy mm-hmm. you know there are no checks and balances at all when it comes to our standards of operations our activities and the distance between our intentions and our actions the impact that our actions have and that is a massive problem when we're talking about making decisions for people that aren't ourselves that we are not proximate to i was just going to say the same i mean if you've had a bad experience with the foundation you have no number to call to report that there is no regulator in any real sense you risk your own job as you say and that's why this conversation today is so powerful I love that the distance between our intentions and our actions and how when I think about shifting power and governance I always try and think of it not just in the context of philanthropy but in the context of human beings and even in my own life and my personal life my professional life I don't know many human beings who are really good at acknowledging and redistributing their power in all of their circles of influence in their life. That's actually oftentimes a difficult thing to do. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't, but I don't want to oversimplify that experience. But philanthropy, as you say, has a particular responsibility to get that right because of the amount of control and power that it objectively has at scale across our societies, across our collective well-being. And It's not enough just to say this is a human thing we all struggle with. There has to be some sort of, as you say, checks and balances in place. Okay, I want to make sure before we sign off today that we talk about the solutions. We have already, and there's been so many ways this has already fed into the conversation, but I want to just bring this back to Unicorns Unite, which of course is the incredible book that you co-authored with Foulet, who was our previous podcast guest. And you have this chapter called What Could Be, and you talk about the dream state for foundations and nonprofits. And so I want to wrap up by asking you what your dream state for good, effective, equitable, enjoyable governance would look like for the sector. Maybe I can go first because I wrote a lot of that chapter. The one in there that I still really like is the idea that a group of actors sets a huge goal And they hold themselves accountable to it by reporting out to the public together in one report on Mm. that goal. So Mm. the idea that we set, you know, we're going to do this thing for the environment or for climate and there's nonprofits and there's government and there's foundations and they're all working together on it. And there's one day a year that the world expects to get the report from that group and people do a public report on it. To me, that would be the kind of governance that would make sense because you're accountable to the public and you're accountable to each other. And I think that there is a lot of peer pressure within the nonprofit and philanthropic space that working with a set of your peers on goals that you have to report on collectively would be a form, of, a good form of governance. Mm-hmm. I love that. The shifting the accountability to the public, making sure it's in the right place. That's absolutely something that is tricky too. And I can see that as well in staff of foundations where they're, even Jasmine, your example is the perfect example. Are you accountable to the trustees or are you accountable to the communities that you're serving? And how do those two things interact with each other? I, I even find it in our job as consultants. There's always a question of accountability. I think that's a really great one. Jasmine, what's your dream state? I don't know exactly what it looks like. I really, this is an area where I am really interested in diversity of ideas, but I think the through line for me in ideal governance is representation. Mm-hmm. It's the embodiment of the fact that most of these funding institutions exist in democratic societies 
We are trying to embody values such as nothing about us without us. We are trying to do things that are community-centric. And if we're doing that without having some form of substantial representation of different groups that are affected, not only one stakeholder group, that is affected by these decisions. It has to be like various groups that are affected with various types of knowledge and expertise as well. There's not just one qualifying factor that should put you in a position of decision making when it comes to determining the flow of resources. Mm-hmm. How do we build governance structures? I would love to see governance structures kind of like meadows, mm-hmm. right? There's a little bit of everything in there. And that diversity of thought, expertise, representation allows us to flourish and do things in new and beautiful ways. That's what I dream. I dream of a meadow. I I also dream of a meadow. That sounds beautiful. And I think also what you're really pointing to is that form follows function in the sense of I hear about this and see it all the time where especially with involving young people in decision making, that's such a hot topic right now. And it's really important and it's incredible and I support it. But the conversation I hear so often is, well, how could young people come into our boardroom and read our hundred page long board packets and contribute to decision making in the way that we currently and traditionally do it? And the answer is, yeah, they probably wouldn't enjoy it. But do any of you? (laughs) Maybe this is actually a huge opportunity to throw those packets in the bin and bring some freaking joy into our governance. I think that the idea of like throwing it out and starting from scratch and enshrining that accountability in some sort of like institutional or sector wide or, you know, something, something bigger than all of the sum of our parts is also really important to keep that all going smoothly. Wow. Okay. There's so much we spoke about today. Thank you so much for your time. Before we wrap up, I do have like one, this will only take a couple of minutes, but I do want to bring this all back to the most serious note of all. I want to ask you some very important speed round questions just to end on a human note. Speaking of, of being human in regards to our interactions with each other in this sector, I think there's so much that we went into today. So I'm going to spitfire a few questions at each of you. If you could just say the first thing that comes to your mind, and then we will wrap it up. Here we go. I'm just going to go between the two of you. So I'm going to start with Jasmine. What was the last show that you binged? Love Island. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Yep. Yep. Excellent Excellent answer. Yep. I love it. I love it. Oh my God. Okay. Jane, if you could eat only one food for the next two months, what would it be? Probably corn. I'm definitely known for my sweet Sweet corn, it's not in season right now. As a Midwesterner, I have to say, I can't eat it in the next months. But when we get into season, I could just eat that all day long. I love that. I love a good corn on the cob. Jessamine, if you had to kill off one of the six Friends characters, who would you choose? It's a bit of a a grim one. Yeah, I feel terrible saying this, but definitely Ross. Sorry, Ross. Yeah. I mean, that has to be the answer, right? I think I agree (laughs) Yeah, sorry, Ross. Uh, Jane, what was the last picture you took? Definitely of my dog. Yeah. 100%. (laughs) Perfect. Probably this morning. Jasmine, what is a hidden talent that you have? Well, following along the animal theme, I am within the realm of this household, an esteemed rabbit masseuse. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yes, yes. My hidden talent. That is an that's a good talent. Oh my god, I would love to see that. 
Jane, what fashion trend do you wish had never existed? The entirety of the 90s, I think. Oh, isn't, isn't the revival painful, Yeah, it's bad, like Jack now, and it's horrible. It. It's just as bad as it ever was. It's oh, terrible. my God. That's so funny. Double-breasted jackets. And yeah. The like low-rise pants. Yeah, yeah. They're, they weren't good then. They're not good I understand. Now. Apologies Waiting to Waiting for acid-washed jeans to come back. <laughs> Jessamine, what is your favorite form of potato? Well, similarly to Jane, being loyal to my roots. Only in that part of the answer, Jane. Um, <laughs> roast potatoes mm. with Yorkshire's copious amounts of gravy and uh-huh. all the trimmings. Gotta be roasties. Delicious. I have to agree. And Jane, speaking of unicorns uniting, what is the most unicorn, i.e. unique, thing about you? That's a big In the one. context of this conversation, probably like Jessamine, we we still love this sector. We're total critics <laughs> of it. We criticize it all the time, but we're still here. We've been yeah. working here for decades and we still love it. Well, this answer got generated and approved by my partner. Oh my God. Okay. Well, then you have to read it. I'll be very disappointed if it doesn't get on. <laughs> Please go for it. I want to hear it. Most unicorn, aka unique thing about me is that I have a very stable marriage to a very unstable person. <laughs> to a very unstable person. <laughs> yes. And that that is that's my lovely partner, Ollie. That is so that shout out to Ollie. Um <laughs> and your your beautiful instability. I'm so glad that you <laughs> you found stability together with your Rabbit masseuse, Jessamine, watching Love Island. That's that's a beautiful picture. Oh, oh my boy. gosh. Oh, this has been so excellent. Thank you both so much for your time, for your wisdom, for all the work you're doing in the sector. I've learned so much from meeting you and listening to your experiences. Very, very final question. If the listeners are only taking one thing away from this conversation, what's the final nugget that you want to leave them with? Mine would be make it happen. Stop talking, make it happen. If you want to see change in governance, change it. Love it. Love it, Jane. Not the physics. We're not talking about laws of physics. We're talking about human beings with agency over how these institutions are structured. Change the board, you know, change the board packets. Yes, let's start with the board packets. Tomorrow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Mine is definitely related there, and it would be please give yourself permission to redefine your role. Your role is not your job description. Your role is not your title. Your role is not attached to your organization. Your role in this sector is the crucial, unique, challenging work of creating the conditions for us all to change the sector together. So whether that is moving from the status quo to new forms of governance, whether that's power dissemination, whether that's any other amazing ambitions that you have for this wonderful, crazy little corner of the world we call the social sector, like define your role yourself to be bigger than your job title. Perfect note to end on. Thank you both so much. Thank you for sharing your specific and universal story. I hope that listeners that you took something away from that. I'm sure you did. And onwards and forwards. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. That is it for today. A huge, huge thank you to Jessamine and Jane for being on the podcast, for being so generous 
with their experiences and their story and being brave enough, honestly, to take so many of the conversations that we all have off the record and, you know, over lunch break with the people that we trust and to actually have those conversations out in the round. I think that's really powerful. And as I said, it's those specific stories that are actually the most universal that where we can all relate to that. I know no matter what job you have in this sector, I know there's something in what they will have shared that will resonate for you or it certainly has for me. And I hope that that's been useful. I just have to say, I really love the solidarity that they have with one another. I think that also really stuck out for me when speaking to them and especially how Jane supported Jessamine in navigating all of that and still does to this day, even in this conversation that we just had. And it makes me just remember how important that is when you're taking risks, when you're trying to change things, having people that have your back and will stand in your corner and will validate your experience is just irreplaceable. So that was really amazing to witness. So for the future of the podcast, we're very, still very much in season four, and there's going to be many more episodes coming soon. In the meantime, of course, you know where to find us. We are on Twitter at IG underscore advisors. We're also on LinkedIn. We do a lot of posting there these days, just IG advisors, how you would follow a company. Our website is impactandgrowth.com. And you can also email me directly if you so choose. I do love getting emails from all of you. So if you want to have a chat about anything, whether it's power dynamics and governance or something else, I'm around and I'm up for it. My email is rachel at ig-advisors.com. And that's advisors, S-O-R-S. I know in the UK it's spelled with an E, but we keep the American spelling. And finally, of course, just a thank you again to our official sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, for making this possible, and to our media partner, Alliance Magazine. Don't forget, you can use the code WHATDONORSWANT for 50% off an Alliance subscription. And also just want to remind you that for Unicorns Unite, they are giving that 50% discount. If you buy it through their publisher's website, redpress.co.uk, you just have to put the book Unicorns Unite in your basket and use the code UNI, U-N-I, 50 all capitals when buying the book and you will get the discount. So lots of great discounts for you all. And we will see you soon for more conversations. Thanks again for listening. See you soon. This podcast was produced by myself, Rachel Stephenson Chef, Esther Cavour, and the team at Scrubcast. Shout out to our editors, Dave and Tim. If you liked it, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us do what we do. Thanks so much.